Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American idea. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is June 14th, the evening of June the 14th. Um, good to have you back from the other side of the pond. It's been a while, um, as it tends to be these days. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, great trip. I remember when I decided I didn't study abroad in college, and I was always like, well, you know, you only get one shot at college, and I, I'll have a chance to, to travel abroad later in my life. And lo and behold, I did. I, I did not know it would be so long before I had a chance to do a study abroad program, but I did. I had a great few weeks over in Ireland, but it is good to be back and, and good to be talking to you. So hopefully we can get a nice little rhythm now that, now that I'm back stateside. Yeah, now you can... Uh... Now you can join join the crew of people who studied abroad and would say, well, you know, when I was in Ireland, they did it this way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, uh, I might not be above that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, what are, uh, what are we talking about this week? Well, before we left, we had a conversation about mass shootings in, in the United States specifically focused on the Buffalo shooting that had taken place in in the supermarket. And we talked generally about gun violence and about the balance between uh, freedom and safety that often happens. And you prophetically in some ways, depressingly in other ways, I suppose you said like, at what point is the, is the country going to have had enough? And at what point is, is another shooting going to force us to make a change? And, well, it looks like we might be reaching one of those points after the the horrific shooting, the school, um, you know, the mass shooting in, in the school in Valde, Texas. Uh, so we're going to talk guns. And it's not, obviously, it's coming from a depressing place because we're coming off several really awful mass shootings in addition to really just the, the normal amount of gun violence and death that happens in our country every day. Uh, so in that sense, it's coming from a depressing place, but the, the conversation is going to be a little bit removed from that and more philosophically about what is happening in Washington right now, what we think should be happening in Washington right now around gun violence. So that's going to be the main topic of this episode. We're also going to touch on the assassination attempt on uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh and what that says kind of like on a broader scale about violence in, in the United States and Speaking of violence, we're going, to, we're going to start with the January 6th committee has been coming out with public hearings over the past week. And so we'll start by looking at that. So I guess like if we had to do like a big theme, it would be kind of violence in the United States. But we're going to look at it through three different lenses, the January 6th hearings, the Kavanaugh assassination attempt, and the, the bulk of the episode will be spent on probably a little bit of a debate between us in terms of what we think should be done um, around gun regulations and other regulations, I suppose, too. Um, but before we get into all that, as usual, as long as I've been away, I haven't forgotten. And I hope no one else out there has forgotten that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You all know if you've been listening to this program that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. 
Uh, you can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And don't forget that's Cannon with two N's, Ricky. I, I shall never forget how to spell Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> this Cannon, Cannon Hill Wood is the most important thing. All right. So let's talk uh, January 6th hearings. So shortly after January, the events of January 6th, however you want to term them, uh, whether it's the, you know, the storming of the cap- the capital, the the riots, the insurrections, there's all sorts of different terms based on how you want to categorize it. The protest, Jack Del Rio, one of the coaches for the Washington commanders called it a dust up the other day and was probably fined $100,000. So, but it's just like, it goes to show like how people in the news media use different words to frame the situation. So the January 6th incident, whatever, whatever we want to term it. Uh, shortly after that, there was, there was huge outrage around the incident. Understandably so there was outrage and we had a whole episode about it, but there seemed to be bipartisan outrage about what happened. Um, but again, as we've chronicled over the last year, that outrage has largely faded on the right and faded to a certain extent, just nationally, even on the left, because it's just one of those things that now has happened what, almost 18 months ago now? And there have been so many things that have happened, the pullout of Afghanistan and the war in Ukraine and the economy and inflation and all of these things that have happened since then, it's natural for it to fade a little bit from people's minds. But the there was a House committee formed uh, to investigate what happened January 6th, shortly after um, the events of, of that day, that was originally proposed to be a bipartisan commission. The Minority leader Kevin McCarthy nominated some staunch Trump allies who were really just going to be on the panel to be obstructionist. Uh, Speaker Pelosi refused to put those people on the committee. And so McCarthy said, well, then there won't be any Republicans on the committee. And they're just they were just going to frame it as this like partisan witch hunt of President Trump and Republicans. Uh, There is one notable uh, exception to that, of course, is that um, Liz Cheney, who was the former number three Republican in the House decided to join the committee. So it's it's largely made up of Democrats and it's chaired by Benny Thompson from Mississippi. Uh, but this Cheney is on it and probably the most prominent member on it. Anyway, they've been doing a lot of work over these past 18 months, just, I mean, days and days of depositions and subpoenas and gathering evidence. The the aides of, of these Congress people must have really must have had a year and a half in terms of sifting through all of the information and data that they have received. Anyway, starting last week, uh, last Thursday, and then also this past Monday, and there will be several more upcoming hearings, the January 6th committee has is taking these hearings public. They feel that at this point, they have enough information to tell a story to the American public, people, American the public. And they wanted to do that as openly and transparently as possible. And that was, again, it started last Thursday. What was, what was last Thursday? The, uh, the 9th. So last Thursday, January 9th, and it was on all the major news networks except for Fox, but it was on. So if you, if you turn on the news that night on prime time, I think it was 8 PM Eastern time. It was CBS, ABC, NBC. Uh, there were, there was an hour, two hours of, of coverage of this on Monday during the day. Most people are probably working, but there were also public hearings held then. And again, those will continue to happen over the over the next couple of weeks. So 
I'd just be curious, like your initial thoughts on the work of the committee, how closely you've been following it, and even like how important do you think it is, given everything else that has happened and that is happening in the world and in, in the country right now? Um, like, where do you think the these public hearings of the committee kind of fit into the overall conversation that we are having or should be having politically? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, I think with, I guess, yeah, first off, I'll say that I really haven't been paying attention to it um, primarily because everything that I've read from like a, like a cursory uh, breezing over of it has just been about things that I feel like I already knew, like how far Trump was willing to go and who he was putting pressure on and who else knew and who they were putting pressure on. For me, like, I, I think if we were going to do something like this, like I would have liked to have seen a, a list of either places where existing rules and regulations came short as in like things that were done legally, but you know, we'd, think in hindsight, hey, this wasn't, this wasn't right. And maybe we should make some rules against like allowing this kind of stuff to happen in the future. Um, That would be nice. I think using like Liz Cheney as your, your little figurehead to give it like, oh, well, you know, there's a Republican involved. So there's some legitimacy here, I think is a joke. Um, Obviously, you know, anybody from Trump's base has completely like renounced her as a, a Republican and you know, she, like doing more of this stuff, I feel like almost makes it worse for her in the, in the future, despite like, I, I almost feel like it's like beyond like, oh, she had a conviction about, you know, what Trump was doing and, and, and that he was doing wrong. Um, now it's like, you know, where else, where, where am I going to go now? Because I don't have really a home within today's Republican party. I don't know. So there are just like a number of things where I felt like, for this to get two hours of prime time airtime every night for four or five nights in a row, I think is kind of ridiculous. Cause I, I don't know that the personal stories of like who knew what, when, and like what was motivating who in doing what to me is all that interesting or revelatory. Like, I, I, I don't know. Have you learned anything new that you didn't feel like, you knew, I mean, maybe you've confirmed some things that were more speculated on back in January, but like, have you learned anything new? Well, that's the tricky part with this is that you you kind of think about like, what's, what's the point of it, right? So for people that are diehard Trump supporters, they're not going to watch these and they're not going to pay attention to them. They're just going to dismiss them out of hand. And to go back to Fox for a second, Fox is the only major news network that didn't cover this in prime time. And not only that, they didn't run any commercials on the night that this was happening. So that even people that might've been tempted to go like switch the channel during a commercial wouldn't have done so. So they gave up like a full night of primetime advertising just to, try to ensure that their viewers had no incentive to go and watch the other one. So I will say like, there's lots of, there's lots of people that are already firmly entrenched in terms of like, this wasn't Trump's fault. This is the media blowing this out of proportion type thing that we're never going to watch it. There are also people that are not going to watch it or are going to watch it and aren't going to have their minds changed because they already completely blame Trump for everything that happened. And so it becomes a question of like, who are you trying to appeal to? And of course, as always, you're trying to appeal to 
the middle X number of percentage. Like maybe that's 40% of the American public in this case, maybe more, maybe less, which I think is always an admirable goal. With that said, like I kind of mentioned earlier, is that there's just so many like real like kitchen table type issues that are happening right now where people are worried about gas prices and food prices and how they're going to get to work or feed their families. And so how many people, even like you and I, we always say are like pretty tuned in and interested in this type of stuff. And you're saying you're not paying much attention to it. I didn't really watch much of it. And so it's kind of like, like, what's the point of it? On the other hand, I think it's absolutely necessary that they're doing it. And this is something they've been doing work, like I said, for 18 months now. And even if it's just for like historical record keeping, this is this is the work they've done. And the work they've done, and I, I want to put this to you, because I think one of the things that I found interesting in talking with you about January 6th is you often tend to say that like Trump is a symptom of the problem and that like, hey, like he for some, maybe a lot of responsibility for what happened on January 6th. But ultimately, this is a sign of a larger problem amongst the people. And just to pin it on Trump is actually like not really addressing like the root cause of the issue. And again, you can correct me if, if that's not what you've been saying, but that's, that's kind of like the, the feeling I've got from you. But the narrative, this is what I found interesting, is that the narrative that the January 6th committee has laid out uh, on Thursday the 9th and on Monday the 13th here of June is that everything was very intentional. And maybe that's not surprising to you, but the, the revelatory part of it is how many people in Trump's world, they got to come. So we're talking about like the attorney general, Bill Barr, his, his campaign manager, Bill Steffian, his daughter, Ivanka Trump, his, his, his son-in-law, Ivanka Trump. And, and we can go on and down the line of all of these people who came and testified in front of the committee and said, look, we told him that he was wrong. We told him that all of these like fraud claims, we investigate all of them. There was nothing there and he knew. And so the only possibilities are like, he becomes completely detached from reality and just doesn't believe any of those people. Possibility one or possibility two is that he knew that he was wrong and perpetuated this lie anyway. And pretty much what everyone says and Stephian, Stephian, uh, his campaign manager from 2020 came out and said there were pretty much two teams after the election. There was what he called his team, which was the team normal, which were people that were rooting hard for Donald Trump to win, believed he should have won, wanted him to win desperately, but acknowledged that he didn't. And then he said there was like team Rudy, which is Rudy Giuliani, um, Sidney Powell, that sort of, those sorts of people that were pretty much in just totally detached from reality and feeding him these lies. And what Trump did is he slowly kicked out all of those people that were on team normal and separated himself from those people and surrounded himself with the yes people that were just in his ear whispering about fraud and fraud and election. It was stolen from you. And this was yours. And so whether either one, either of those cases that Trump was so detached from reality or, and I think more likely is that he knew he was wrong, but wanted to perpetuate this lie anyway, what they're doing, the, the January 6th committee is laying it squarely at his feet is that the actions of January 6th were not just a one day Oh, things got kind of got out of hand here. It was from January, from November 6th on, from the night of the, like, late night in the election, when we we didn't know who was going to win at that point. And apparently drunk Rudy Giuliani got in his ear and said, just don't, just go declare that you want it right now. 
Trump listens to him. He goes out, he declares victory. And from that moment forward, everything is leading up to January 6th, where there's a carefully constructed, orchestrated desire to fuel the suspicions of his supporters that they, they were wronged. And so I guess like that's been interesting for me, for the committee to really lay this out and to, to kind of say that as much as we want to blame like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, they're saying we need to lay this squarely at the feet of the former president. I mean, yeah, I, well, I guess I'll start with your first point, which is like documenting and like getting as much of the historical detail from first person accounts, I think is 100% a worthwhile uh, endeavor. I I don't know that I ever had any doubts as to who was responsible or like, yeah, who could have stopped and or started this in the first place. But I guess when I think about work that I want Congress to do, especially like public work like this, I still have to think about like, what are what are the policy implications? Like what are, okay. So that, so this happened, Donald Trump was able to do this, but at the end of the day, my concern is not Donald Trump, the person, but that is what all the committee is like doing. It's like, this is, this is how this guy did it. Not how, okay, we have like, why do we still have this like weird electoral college thing that or, you know, why do we still have to wait a month to certify the election results? And why do we have separate committees in every state that can kind of like do the things that Donald Trump was asking them to do that, you know, we have we had to our democracy hinged on Brad Raffensperger deciding, no, I'm not going to like take 10,000 votes out of, you know, from Democrats in Georgia and put them on Donald Trump's ledger. Like, I'm just not going to do that. Like, those are the things that I think would have been more fruitful because at the end of the day, as a country, we're, we're more of a, like, it's, it's never been on the individuals. It's been that we have these systems and these laws really in place that kind of preserve our society and that, you know, individuals come and go. And here's one individual who tested our system, you know, in some ways to the brink And yes, we can focus on how he was solely responsible. Like in my mind, he was always solely responsible, but the yes men that we're talking about, they, they existed from day one. Like he, you know, he was firing people left and right who were not agreeing with him at different stages. And so these yes men basically had to get to the point where he was denying the results of a fairly held election before they would say, okay, you know what, maybe I'm going to say no, but I'm not going to say it publicly. Like none of these people ever said anything publicly until maybe after January 6th. So like, I don't, yeah, to me, like, I don't, I'm not, none of this is, is like, I still believe that Donald Trump is a singular individual who was enabled by a lot of other powerful people to get to where he was. And then maybe he wielded influence beyond their control, which is probably something that they weren't happy about. But, you know, I'm not going to absolve any of any uh, anybody else of responsibility just because when it came down to the election, they decided, all right, maybe maybe I have to draw a line somewhere. I don't know. There's just so much of this that that like focusing on Donald Trump 
in this instance just doesn't seem like it's going to do anything for us beyond that we need to like document the importance of this uh, as part of the historical. All right. All right. Counterpoint to that then. Right now, I would say most Americans would agree that the country is not in great shape and that President Biden's administration thus far has largely not been successful. So in that case, people go looking for the next alternative. And the easiest, most obvious next alternative is former President Trump. Like we, we've, again, we don't have to litigate how much that is. Like we know that he's still a singular figure in the, in the country, as you said. And what I think this does is hopefully puts back into a lot of people's minds that like, look, Biden has been somewhere between a small and unmitigated disaster as, as a leader here. But if, if that's your alternative, then maybe like there's something to be said for, and I guess like with one of the reasons that the committee wanted to hold hearings now is that we're gearing up for 2022. And I do think, I think I, this was like a, maybe a Washington Post editorial that I read where it's like, this is a good reminder that we have that like individuals matter. And so like the people that we're voting for, we, we often get tied up understandably. So in issues of the economy and inflation and in gas prices and abortion and in gun rights. And those are all in, important things. And, and maybe for a lot of people, those are like the most important things, any one of those issues. But something else that should be considered is like leaders that like respect democracy. And so like even as you're searching for the committee to come up with more rules, at some point, there are only so many rules you can do is where you have to trust that people are just going to abide by like democratic norms that we've established over the country for hundreds of years. Like that's just, that's just, it's the same thing with like Supreme court decisions that even if you don't like them, we're going to abide by them because we live in a society with the rule of law. I guess we'll get back into that later at the end of the episode with Kavanaugh. But like that, what I'm saying is like, there is a theme that runs through these things that like where like individuals matter. And so even as these people that are like in these primaries, when you have Trump-backed supporters that are still pressing the big lie and are saying that they're going to kind of do things with elections versus, like, even in South, South Carolina has primaries tonight, and there are two people, um, Tom Rice and Nancy Mace, both of whom came out against President Trump pretty strongly in the immediate aftermath and are now facing, like, Trump-backed challengers. Like, this, and I can't speak for the people of South Carolina, but, like, that, that's, there's a clear choice here of, like, people that are going to stand up for the, for democratic norms and for like the constitution and the rule of law, again, like Liz Cheney is versus people that are just, are just not going to. And so I, I do think like that, that stuff matters. And at, at the very least, it's hopefully a reminder for like centrist type voters of like, look, if I could go either way, putting leaders in place that are going to respect democratic norms is, is still at or near the, the top of the list of importance. Matter, yeah, well, I maybe, but matters to who exactly. I mean, you started off this segment basically saying anybody who you know firmly held Donald Trump responsible for what happened, their minds are not going to be changed. Like, do you really see, like, to be a, a, I guess, to be frank, like, a to be a fully like independent, like, oh, I don't know about Donald Trump at this stage really just means that either you don't care or you do care and you're not willing. to. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Like that. I'm not really talking about those people. I think that as I started with, like, 
inevitably the outrage and horror of what happened on January 6th phase and people forget about it. And it doesn't seem as bad in hindsight as, as it actually was. And this hopefully is a reminder to people that like, look how close our, our democracy came to really collapsing here. And it, and it came this close to collapsing, not because of like rules, but because of people and the people that we empowered at the very top of our executive branch, but also like in lots of places throughout our legislative branch. And so maybe this is a reminder to people of the horror of that day and why it's important, like I said, to put in place people who respect tradition and, and democratic like norms in place of power. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I don't disagree. I, like to some degree, you can never have all of the rules that kind of cover all of the loopholes, but I think there are like a couple of changes that could be, could have kind of prevented how far we came like I mean, for instance, whatever was going on in January 6th before the riot, like, is is completely perfunctory. Like, it doesn't serve any purpose other other than kind of this, like, old holdover of, like, a, hey, if we actually think, if you know, if enough of us people who are in charge decide that democracy didn't yield the result that we want, like, we, this is our, like, kind of last gasp at it. That, that's, like, Otherwise, why would you have this? There's no other reason that you have this thing. And, and maybe like, yeah, I don't know. I've, I mean, I feel like Donald Trump was really like the quintessential example of why you cannot rely on individuals to, to hold on to these norms because at every turn, you know, the election was like the culmination. It's not, but it's not like he was like playing by the unwritten rules for the four years of his presidency, he was like explicitly not. And that was like part of his appeal. So then to get here and be like, well, you know, at some point we need people who respect these rules. It's like, he didn't respect anything. And, and that was fine, but with everybody until now it's, you know, hopefully fine with less people, but clearly still fine by a lot of people. Right. So I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I just think a even if this is shedding a light on that the sort of I don't think the people who need to be illuminated in this area are a either like willing to listen or b even giving this like a fair shot and so yeah there are all, it feels like there are a lot of other things and if and if the only outcome is that we like firmly are able to definitively say who is responsible and who is not, then I don't know that I'm, that I feel like this was like a real worthwhile exercise in the, in, in this kind of like public type of forum, not in the, in the sense of like historical documentation. Yeah. This is, I've missed your negativity. Uh, no, I guess like I don't disagree with like your underlying premise that not a lot of people are listening and still I feel like it's worth doing. So I that's I think again, that's maybe just a, a disagreement of dispositions between us here. Yeah. Yeah, you're always a glass half full kind of guy. But. All right. Well, uh let's see if that translates to to the the meat of this episode. We'll come back and we'll talk about guns. All right, Brandon. So when I was shooting 
uh, over, oh, wow, no pun intended, uh, sending over some uh, topics that I thought we should talk about. I, I, I kind of started off with basically saying, you know, I think it's high time that we talk about guns. And so I want to start, um, I mean, I, th- I think we will get into some of the policy things that have been proposed, um, particularly kind of what we think will come out of the Senate, which is really sort of the holdup right now for, for any kind of legislation. Um, but I want to maybe ground this discussion in like, I mean, a, a soundbite that probably got, uh, that probably got passed around um, far too much in progressive circles. Cause I think it's sort of a non kind of gotcha question, but Ted Cruz was asked by like some British uh, reporter. Do you, do you see this little interview? I don't think so, but I don't think anything he says is going to surprise him. No, well, so he actually doesn't really say anything, and the reporter is like trying to press him on um, sort of the idea around American exceptionalism and why he thinks that the problem or why he thinks mass shootings happen in the United States at a rate that just like far outpaces any other place in the world. And as someone who, you know, frequently says on this podcast that, you know, I think this is the greatest country in the world. And to a degree, I actually hold, I, you know, I, I, I feel very similarly. Um, do you have any opening thoughts on why you think this happens here and nowhere else? Yeah, I think there's, I just think it's a complicated answer that can't be done in a soundbite. And so is it, are there socioeconomic reasons? Sure. Are there mental health reasons? Sure. Are there like the proliferation of guns in our country? Sure. I think all of these things combine to create conditions that allow for things like this to happen. And I also think that there are, and those are all negative things. And, but they're also strongly held, deeply rooted, traditional beliefs in freedom uh, and, and, and in, in individual rights and responsibilities that. I think don't necessarily exist in other countries in which like they're able to react from a government level more quickly and strongly to crack down when incidents like this do happen in other countries. Like, so wherever you want to, I mean, we can cherry pick a bunch of countries, but obviously there was a horrific shooting in New Zealand a few years ago. And after that, they were just just like, all right, no more guns allowed here. Uh, Which I think a lot of people in this country right now would be like, great, we should be more like that. I don't believe that. So I guess like, I don't think there's a short answer to your question. My short answer would be like that there are a multitude of factors that contribute to this. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would probably disagree with certain assertions that like we have different mental health conditions in this place in, in the United States than, than exist elsewhere in the world and, or that we really have, such a different socioeconomic um, makeup than anywhere else in the world. I think, I, th- I mean, I think, so part, part of why I wanted to start it here is that like, I think, I think it's important to talk about gun violence, which like, obviously we have a, a huge uh, problem with that in comparison to the rest of the world. I'm not saying it, it is like a massive, massive problem, um, in the grand, sort of in the grand scheme of problems, I guess. Um, but that is potentially separate from these incidents of mass shootings, right? You have them in schools, in movie theaters, in grocery stores, 
like really kind of the everyday things that people in America who are cherish their freedoms do on a kind of regular basis. And so uh, I think one of the things I guess I wanted to talk about is like, why, given that like mass shootings are still relatively uncommon, despite the fact that like over Memorial Day weekend in the last three weeks, it feels like we had one or two and it's possibly that some of them are getting more national news coverage than they usually do. But we, you know, it's felt like every day there was after Buffalo and Uvalde, there was uh, Philadelphia and another one in Virginia. And, you know, in, in, and Philadelphia was in like outside of some nightclubs and, you know, almost every place that when we look at like American society, the things that we get to do, here that we might look in some other parts of the world it's like oh it's not really either safe enough or the government has too many restrictions that you can't do those things it's like oh well we get to do those things here um mass shootings in a way make that exercise of our freedom a little bit more uncomfortable and so like i don't know like when when i i feel like i hear a lot from conservatives when we talk about mass shootings is that, or, or, you know, if somebody says to ban assault rifles, like one of the typical responses is that, well, you know, barely anybody's ever killed by an assault rifle. Like, that's not the problem. We have these other problems. And yeah, I wonder how you think about that. Do you think about like a distinction between those types of issues and like what we're seeing from mass shootings? Yeah, they're they're distinctive in the sense that they're the most horrific, but I think you could quite easily argue that all gun violence is horrific. Uh and that I think you're as you're alluding to, mass shootings only account for one percent of, of gun deaths in, in this country. And so if if in my opinion, if we want to talk about guns, and this is what I hope we get into today, is to limit it to assault weapons bans or even just to limit it to mass shootings is just like, that's you're like missing the forest for the trees here. It's like, if you want to say that we have a gun problem in the United States, fine, but let's talk about that. But what we're talking about, there are obviously tens of thousands of people that die by gun deaths every year. And I think over half of those are suicides. And most of the other ones are in non-mass shootings that are just, but are not like, these are, the, they're all tragic in, in a certain sense. And obviously when we're talking about, fourth graders getting gunned down or people, elderly people at a, at a church or at a grocery store, like those, those, I mean, it's, it's, it's unfathomable. Like that, that's, those are horrible, horrific things, but to people um, that are everyday victims of gun violence, like those are also horrible, tragic things. And so while they're separate in the sense that like they maybe are especially horrific and they get the most media attention and the most attention of lawmakers and that as you know taking nothing away from that i think one of the common conservative responses and you can say yes or no is like whenever people start like coming out like banging the drum for like gun reform after buffalo or valde it's like well where have you been the other 363 days of the year when there have been you know shootings in in chicago every single day or in boston or new york or wherever right it's like well, if you're if, we're, if you were serious about gun violence, you could have brought this up any single time. So, all right. So, I have I've actually been thinking about this a lot because I think there's there's certainly something valid to that criticism. 
I think I think I have a, a, a couple of things to say. One, it always baffles me that we can't that we cannot like gun violence isn't right as, as you've alluded to. We have suicides. We have like gang violence. We have you know, a number of different things that make up probably like 80% of gun violence, or maybe even like 95% of gun violence, let's say. And then you have sort of this more limited subsection of mass shootings. But I would argue that, you know, conservatives are right. Banning assault rifles is not going to take care of 95% of those other crimes. But we have sort of a limited we have kind of an opportunity though, to take care of maybe a big chunk of what is what we all agree is kind of the most heinous of these crimes, which is the mass shooting, because not only does it affect all of the people who were killed and injured, it affects all of the other people who were like physically there and may not have physical scars, but all have the emotional scars forever. It affects all of their parents, all of their relatives, the randomness of it, really affects like everybody everywhere because unlike, you know, being a victim of gang violence, which like, like you said, there's, there's no uh, disagreeing with the fact that like, if you're a victim of gun violence, you're a victim of gun violence and you don't, it like to you, there's no, there's no uh, spectrum of severity, but to the average person, there's a difference between, you know, two two members of rival gangs shooting each other in on the south side of chicago then somebody walking into a supermarket and just randomly shooting 20 people right there's definitely a difference there and i think we also know that the causes of the two types of crimes can be very different so why would we limit ourselves to a single solution like hey if i can't deal with crime, then I'm not going to deal with this other subsection of this issue because I can't deal with it all. Like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure I really understand that argument. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I, I just, I just wanted to make the, the case that the argument should be more, the, the plan of attack here should be more comprehensive. And so like, I don't know if you want to get into like what the Senate proposed or what the house passed last week in terms of their like actual proposals. But I, I think that, coming out of this and being like, all right, well, passing assault weapons, all right, we've solved the problem, banning assault weapons, we've solved the problem. I, I think that's, uh, you know, myopic at, at best. And really, like, I think it, it's one of, it would be like a show more political theater than actually solving, uh, like, a lot of actual real issues here. So, I mean, all right, I, I mean... I guess still, like, I don't understand the, like, is your, is your concern that, okay, if we do the assault weapons ban, then we'll never do anything else. And so that'll leave untouched all of this other sort of issues of gun violence, or that uh, the assault weapons ban is besides the point, even if we did try and attack these other issues, we would never include an assault weapons ban because that's like a second amendment issue. I feel like this is where I, I really just like lose the reasoning because I mean, I, I agree that you, in order to kind of tackle some of these broader issues, you have to get, you know, way deeper than the guns themselves. But 
there were, I mean, we like we know in Buffalo that the guy purchased his weapon basically that day. We know in Uvalde the guy turned 18 and bought his gun like that day. Like we know that even if as people say, well, you know, criminals can get guns, that it which is I I think is I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that argument where it is. Like I I think regardless of like whether or not these things could have been prevented in their absoluteness of it, if there is sort of a low hanging fruit as a way to make these things harder to happen, why wouldn't we take them? Yeah. I don't, again, I don't disagree with you. I think we should be doing something and I'm glad that Congress seems to be doing something. And so I say the counter to the argument that I brought up earlier is the reason that people who maybe care deeply about gun violence don't do something the other 363 days a year is because it's, it unfortunately is just so commonplace that it's hard to get people outraged and to get like the, the moral, the, the media politicians, regular people to care about gun violence. One is just, Oh, it's another person dead here. Two more people dead here. Like, and again, like, especially if you want to pitch it as gun violence or suicides, which are things that people maybe don't have a lot of sympathy for, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and so we had kind of alluded to this after the Buffalo shooting, a com- common conservative criticism of people wanting to do gun reform after these terrible tragedies and school shootings in particular is that, like, don't, don't take this moment and use it to make a political statement. But actually, like, the reason why you do use these moments as a chance to change policy is because enough people care right now you have enough like eyeballs on this and enough like outrage about it and so yeah i have no uh, like i have no issue with people using these tragedies to try to make change and i think everyone i don't want to speak obviously for these like victims or the families of them but i think they would say like don't let my kid or my family members life go to waste try to like do something to make sure this doesn't happen again so look i'm all in favor of 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 making some comprehensive reforms to a lot of the system i guess my my point is that like coming out and being like whatever i already said it, being like all right let's, let's ban assault weapons we, we've solved the issue that, that that does nothing for me okay well let's talk a little bit about the legislation that has been uh proposed so in the house it was like far more broad and uh, as as they like to say sweeping obviously because democrats control the house um and and they can kind of do these things a little bit so they passed legislation banning semi-automatic weapons to people under the age of 21 important distinction not an all outright ban banning the sale of large capacity magazines um you know the the kinds that allow people to to do these kinds of things um and enacting a federal red flag law so right now for those who are unaware red flag laws essentially allow people to raise concerns uh about family members um to law enforcement and essentially if there's a credible threat that they may harm themselves or others in some states law enforcement is able to confiscate their guns generally for like a period of time. Um, but there's, it's like a patchwork obviously of, of legislation. And so, um, you know, if you live in a state with a red flag law and the state over doesn't have that kind of legislation because it's not federal, there's really nothing preventing you from going from one place to another and, and kind of, uh, yeah, kind of getting a, around the law with relative ease. So that's the house proposals. And essentially, 
everyone is basically saying that's dead on arrival. There's, you know, really no appetite in the Senate to entertain any type of assault weapon, like any change on assault weapons in terms of like who, who is able to own them. Um, I have an interesting anecdote that I learned in this whole thing that I'm curious uh, if, if you're aware of just kind of like the stat, stat status of our current existing gun laws baffles me, but in the Senate, the bipartisan legislation that's coming out of the Senate, right? So in the Senate, we need 10 Republicans um, to move anything. We've got a bill that's going to enhance background checks for juvenile and mental health records um, for prospective buyers under the age of 21. So it essentially amounts to like a very limited waiting period that allows sellers of guns to do more thorough background checks and maybe get some access to previously kind of sealed records about uh, younger, perhaps violent offenders. It doesn't have a federal mandate around red flag laws, but it's trying to incentivize states, which is like uh, a, a tactic that I feel like I feel like it's maybe a little bit more of a conservative tactic that will give you a little bit more of a carrot than a stick. And you come up with how you want the red flag law to be. We're not going to tell you how it's going to be. States rights. Whoop, whoop. Um, and uh, those are kind of the two main things that are coming out of it um, that I see. I like tried to figure out if there's really anything else in there of substance. Um, I guess notably where we are that's interesting is that this is like our first piece of gun control esque legislation in like over 30 years. Um, which is, I guess, not surprising. Um, but a little wild to me, given that I, I, I would imagine that gun technology has progressed quite a bit over 30 years that we would have had something, but we've had nothing. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the, the closest the Senate came was back in 2013, I believe, which was, again, after the, the horrific Newtown Sandy Hook um, school shooting massacre, really. Uh, and I believe Manchin, um, Joe Manchin and Toomey, I forget, is it for Pat Toomey, I think, or John Toomey, something like that, uh, from Pennsylvania, put together a bipartisan bill, but that was shot down by most Republicans and a few Democrats, too. Uh, so like we haven't had anything close to this and the fact that this has come out and again, it's not written yet. And there's obviously it's, uh, it's much harder to put, you know, framework into writing. And so this is still far from a done deal, but you have at least 10 Democrats and at least 10 Republicans that came out and said, we are for these, these changes. And that, that bodes well. And you would, you would think that you might get a few more Republicans and hopefully won't get any democratic defections on this, uh, I I think the Senate bill is is good. And to your question earlier of like, this is one of those classic, like don't let perfect be the enemy of good type situations. It's like a lot of people on the left will probably say, this doesn't go nearly far enough. And if you look, if you compare it to the House bill, it absolutely does not. But that doesn't mean that we can't do this right now and then come back to this in the near future. And I think I think it's important to get something done. And I hope that, and I think that it is. And if you look at like these group, uh, the, the group of 20 that are there, uh, I think these are people. And so some common names are cinema, Chris Murphy from Connecticut, who's been a huge um, kind of bipartisan person that's tried to get like gun reform in John Corner from Texas, 
Um, Romney's there, of course. Susan Collins is there. Manchin is there. Chris Coons is there. Um, Cory Booker is there. Like Mark Kelly are there. Like August, August um, Angus King is there. Like it, you're looking at the senators that I think really get it. That like are like, hey, we're here to like do things. And I, I think like. I have hope that this will get done. And so, again, I understand that there are going to be people on the left that say it doesn't go far enough. And there are going to be people on the right that says it goes absolutely too far. And I've already seen this kind of floating around some of my social media of, like, these are the people that have betrayed your constitutional rights by agreeing to this. And so, like, and to me, that means it's, like, pretty good legislation is that you have people on the far sides of either wing that are saying this is goes too far, not far enough. But this is, like, tangible legislation that should hopefully make a difference. That's my take on it. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, I think to your point, if we do end up getting more red flag laws out of this, I think part of the issue for me is like, even if, even if we want to use some kind of incentive system, sort of the way that we did for, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act, like an incentive and like also a stick, like here's the way that we're going to make it affordable for you to get insurance. And if you then still decide you're not going to do it, then we have some penalty on the back end. Like, yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> Just to be clear. Well, all right. I mean, that's fine. I think what, what will end up happening is that you'll have States that continue to just decide that these right flag laws are sure. not necessary. Sure. And I think that that's, a, I mean, if, if you were deciding to say that, you know, mass shootings are a small enough problem that like, whatever, we're not going to do anything about the assault weapons ban. Red flag laws here are, are a way to kind of tangibly address some of the mental health side of the gun violence problem, but you're not going to mandate it. And so we already know what states are not going to do anything about it. Um, and that's a problem when you live in a, in a country where there's free you can go from one state to the next. Like everyone loves to talk about what well, you don't talk to me about what happened in this, in this state, when you've got Chicago with all this gun violence, well, Chicago happens to border like Gary, Indiana, where you can purchase a gun legally with very little restrictions. And so saying that gun restrictions don't work because Chicago has them and see all the gun violence, like doesn't, mean anything to me because we live in a place where it, you can drive 20 minutes across borders and all of a sudden the rules are different. And so obviously, I mean, it's, it's like this, it's like teenagers driving up to like wherever Montreal or whatever to, to drink when the, when the drinking age there is 16 or 17 went versus 21 here. Like, yes, those things make like the exercise of these laws very difficult. And to me, that's a big problem. But I guess I will grant you the fact that we have something, some conversation is very good. One of the things I did point out to you is that all 10 Republicans who are like putting their, you know, necks out there and getting put blasted on message boards of like, who's like messing up your, your kind of your second amendment rights here, four of them are leaving office, basically headed for retirement. Five aren't up for reelection for four years. And really the only guy is Romney in 2024. And yeah, I mean, he's got enough of his own issues with like the base of the Republican Party that I think he either feels like he's safe or he's not he's not one of those people who, uh, I guess, you know, Trump basers haven't had their eyes set on. So he has a little bit less to lose. Like, does that 
does that bother you at all that like the only people who are willing to do something in this instance are ones who don't have to face voters? I think what it says is that like for all the outrage on the left, there's a significant portion of the right who wouldn't want to do anything here. And so like those people are responsible to their constituents. And if they feel like voting to place some restrictions on gun rights would make them vulnerable in re-election. I understand that politically. I don't love it like morally, but I, I think what it says is that I think it's real easy for people like again in ivory towers to be like, look, everyone understands that gun violence is a problem. I'm not totally sure that a lot of people do. And so a lot of people like that are responding to constituents that don't want any, any restrictions placed on their rights, like they're representing their, their people as they should. I, I, I think that there's a little bit of a misnomer here in, in trying to equate with what's going on in the Senate with the actual like general feeling of the population. Right. I mean, we kind of know how the, the Senate doesn't have the, and you know, for what it's worth, the house may, may flip in, 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 at the end of this quarter, but, uh, or at the end of this year, but like the, uh, the, the majority of Americans are not in on this. The, the like the reason that we can't pass any legislation is that it has to go from, it has to go from the house to the Senate, you can't get a vote in the Senate because you have to have 60, you have to have 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. And so this is not like a a situation where the issue is necessarily split 50, 50, right? Like I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying that the, the senators from red States that are representing their people, their, the people they're representing often don't want gun legislation passed. Yeah. But is that kind of a problem with our system then that like we like somehow we have uh, this form of representative representative government, but like somehow we have this this body of elected officials that can essentially in in the cause of representing their constituents sort of block legislation that is favorable or you know is viewed favorably by the majority of americans by more than the majority of yeah, yeah i mean no it doesn't bother me but i think you knew that already um i think that that's that's the system and for all of the people like the the majority of americans maybe the vast majority of americans that you seem to allude to that want these things great put them put them in the place no one's stopping you from doing that well yeah no there are people stopping us from doing that well i mean look at massachusetts or oregon have like two of the, the kind of strictest gun laws in the country. Like it's possible to do. Again, these are these, this is exactly why you need the federal government though. These types of rules, it doesn't matter if Massachusetts has a certain, we don't have, oh, we don't, someone going to build the wall at Massachusetts and start checking driver's licenses at the border. And then seeing, you know, if you brought your guns in from from West Virginia, like that's not how this, that's not how the country works. And so saying like states should be, have the rights to like do whatever they want to me, doesn't, to me, doesn't mean anything, but all right. I mean, I think, I think one thing I like would like to just ground this in is, is, is where we are as a country relative to the rest of the world. So I sent over like a couple of stats for you that were, were kind of baffling. We have 120 guns per 100 people, estimate of roughly 400 million guns. I think we're at 
population of like 330 million people. Um, we're the only nation that like as, as part of these kinds of studies that have more guns than have people. Firearm related injury is the number one cause of death for children and adolescents that surpassed motor vehicles. And if you look at sort of the trends uh, in terms of how many people or how many adolescents were killed, then obviously like it, it makes sense that things like heart disease and whatever cholesterol, cancer are not going to be leading causes of, of deaths for younger people. Um, basically, we've seen through restrictions on how you drive and like what you're supposed to do in the car to be safer, like without preventing people from driving or buying cars, we found a way to make cars safer and to like, like protect children, so to speak. So that, I mean, one, one analogy that I think should be able to resonate that like we can do things on a like federal level or are in in other ways that just make it harder for this stuff to happen that we're not doing without taking away guns from people and we've done that in parallel ways with with other things now sure there's no third amendment right to say that you can drive a car partly because cars weren't envisioned in uh in, in 1776 when these things were being drafted but um you know maybe maybe if George Washington had a Ford, he would have thought differently and, and put something in there. Um, <laughs> top civilian gun owning countries. Number one is the US. Number two is Yemen. I, I like to think of like every time we have some kind of social policy on Fox News, I hear like Democrats are like trying to make us Venezuela and like our Republicans trying to make us Yemen. Maybe. I don't know. Um <laughs> Gun deaths per 100,000 people in developed countries. This one was wild to me. We're at 3.94 per 100,000 in the U.S. Cyprus is the next highest at 0.628. So if we think about like our peer countries, like countries that we'd like to think, I would imagine have similar amounts of like freedom in terms of what you can say and what you can do and where you can be. Um, we're like five to six times more likely to have gun deaths here than they are there. That includes suicides, that includes gun violence, mass shootings, all of it. Um, like these numbers just put us so far and away as an outlier, it would, it would seem like even if you believe in the Second Amendment rights, which I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm not a gun person, but I actually have no issue with people owning guns for self-defense, for hunting, but like other common sense things like background checks or like, I don't know, some kind of training, like you have to get a driver's license. Why can't you just get like a gun license that gives people opportunities to like, hey, I have a little bit of a question about this guy. He's coming in here asking for a gun license, but he seems like a total nut job. Like, I don't understand why that is such a problem for the majority of people. And I, like, I, frankly, I'm not sure that I believe that it is like a lot of this seems, but I mean, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. When I read the message boards in terms of what some people are asking for, like, you know, running around trying to like confiscate guns and, and on the, on the sort of more left. And then on the other side, like, you know, we need to repeal even whatever gun restrictions we have need to go. 
I don't know, but are those people like the real people? I don't know. They're not, which is why I, I kind of said what I that I really like the Senate bill because I think that's why people are going to be outraged on both sides. And I, I think it, there are steps towards making some of this stuff happen. And I don't disagree with some of the other suggestions you just proposed in terms of more extended background checks for, for all people, not just under 21 uh, and, and requiring licenses or put, maybe putting in uh, like safe storage laws or, or, or red flag laws. Like if we can incentivize with enough money for all states to have red flag type laws. I'm not, I'm not against those things. Like I'm not going to sit there and fight you and say that these are against the second amendment, but I'm also realistic that I don't think there's widespread support across all states for that. And I'm not in favor of like forcing states to do that. I, I mean, I think that there are like, there are instances where our freedoms can be abridged kind of against our own desires for the greater good. I think that like that is in many ways the part of the purpose of responsible government. And I think like we would like to think that individuals would willingly come together and say, Hey, I don't want to do this for myself, but I'm a little bit safer if we all do this together, then, and then that's how it would like come about. But I, I, I feel like in in some instances that's wishful thinking, but I think, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you that at the end of the day, politicians are supposed to be the voices of the people that vote them in. And if they feel like doing any of this stuff is going to get them voted out, then, then they're, I don't know. Look, I, I, again, I'm coming out of this like optimistic that we got, we potentially, and again, it's not done yet. I don't want to count my chickens yet, but like we are potentially going to have gun legislation for the first time. And as you said, 30 years. And I think it opens up a crack. It opens up a conversation, a basis that we can say, all right, we've done this. All right. What, what's, what are other things that we could do that are common sense things like, like a bunch of things you just suggested that would not, that would be palatable to the majority of people on the right, that it's not going to infringe on people's rights too much, but the, the, the incremental loss in rights that you might have are going to lead to a huge societal benefit and safety on the other hand. And I, but I, I think like, if this gets passed, knock on wood that it does, then we can start having that conversation more frequently. I think this is the problem we've had with the immigration debate over the past couple of decades is we, we haven't even done anything with it. And so the problem seems so insurmountable that no one can ever come to the table and have a like legitimate conversation about it. Here, at least we're having the conversation. Hopefully we get something passed. Is it, is it enough? Probably not. But it's something and something we could build. Yeah, but I, uh, I mean, and, and then this is where like the, you know, you're worried sort of someone on the left coming out and, and not supporting this. Like the argument would be, this is the first thing that we've done in 30 years. And if we're going to table this for another 30 years, we better do something that's going to have more of an, more of an impact. I mean, I guess I'll be curious to see what kind of red flag laws come out of this. I mean, if there's one shining star in this whole thing, and I wish we had your buddy back on here, it would be that uh, that Florida actually, after Parkland, did institute like a bunch of state level uh, legislation to do certain things like raising the the minimum age to purchase and um, extending that kind of the, the red flag law 
so, so it, it can be done and it can yeah. be done in like red states so it's it's not like totally out of the picture and i will say this is something i learned in law school i don't i wonder if you know this do you know why that no this is a little off topic but hopefully you'll be able to see the connection do you know why the drinking age in the united states is 21 uh i actually heard, oh shoot this is good trivia because i heard somebody explain uh you know what just tell me i'm not I don't know, fuddle around way too long. Out of All right. So obviously it used to be 18 in, in a lot of places and different states had different laws. And what was happening was the federal government was seeing kind of exactly what you said, where people would go over New Hampshire because it was 18 over there and 21 here in, in Massachusetts. I'm just kind of like picking two states at random and then go drink. And then they come back over here and they'd be getting into car accidents. So the federal government said, we're only going to give you federal funds to build highways if you make your the drinking age in your state 21 and so like this a similar thing and south dakota actually sued like the united states because they south dakota wanted to remain at 18 and said like they can't withhold all these funds and the court said yeah they can and so like it's it's a similar type of situation here where like a lot of states might not go along with this willingly but if you tie enough funds to it like if the stick is big enough i mean if the if the carrot is big enough where like hey this is going to make a substantial difference and this is even what we've seen with like the affordable care act with a lot of red states that originally were like heck no, I'm not taking any of this money. And then they started to look at their budgets and they were like, uh, well, we're going to kind of need that money, right? And so like a lot of red states over the past decade have adopted a lot of the parts of the Affordable Care Act because the federal government can dangle a lot of money in front of you. Again, it, it, that's a possibility here. Obviously, we don't know the specifics, but if you dangle enough money in front of states, they will make these changes sooner or later. And that's like the the drinking age of 21 wasn't something that was easily done was done overnight but it was like look we're seeing all of these deaths happen because of inconsistent laws across states what is we as federal government can do let's incentivize states to change their own laws potentially we have something like that happening right now that's interesting i actually feel like i heard a different reason reason uh not the not kind of the methodology but um that that uh that makes that makes a lot of sense and i have heard that the incentives on the red flag laws are 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 definitely not going to be inconsequential. They're, they they at least in in the design they're going to be um, they're going to be pretty substantial. I guess my fear is that mass shootings, which as we know are a small portion, but they're kind of perpetrated by a very similar type of person with a very similar type of weapon are not necessarily the subject of this particular bill. Like, I don't, I don't think that the 18 year old in Uvalde had any prior like documented things of mental illness. Like I, I, I read sort of that he had been in like fights and stuff like that, but like nothing to the point where it would show up on his record and yeah, there, there are, uh, I guess, I guess one should look at this optimistically. Um, although <laughs> sometimes I find that difficult. All right. When we, uh, that may be a, the right place to leave it. When we, uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about, um, a story perhaps you haven't heard of, um, the Red Kavanaugh assassination attempt. So as you said, Ricky, this might be a story that escaped a lot of people's attention, but it's a serious one. And when you hear assassination attempt, 
you you kind of jumped like the the highest things the, the assassination attempt on President Reagan or the the successful assassination of President Kennedy or Lincoln or McKinley or whomever right and um, and it's kind of like in between those two things it's something that people should be paying attention to because it's serious and important and luckily it ended up not coming that close to happening so for people that don't know last week. Uh, Maryland police arrested a 26-year-old man from California who had a gun, knife, pepper spray, and burglary tools uh, on a street just one block from um, Justice Kavanaugh's house. And he was going there with ostensibly the the intention of of killing um, Justice Kavanaugh. What happened was he went, he was on Kavanaugh's block. He saw that there was a, like, U.S. Marshals outside of Kavanaugh's home because um, Supreme Court justices do get protection, and that protection has actually been increased recently. Um, thank goodness. And saw the U.S. Marshals turned around, called his sister. His sister was like, "You need to turn yourself in," and he turns himself in and gets arrested. And so, luckily, it's it's kind of a you know as happy of an ending as could happen with this. But we're getting like dangerously close to a real assassination attempt, an active assassination attempt, and you know. God forbid, like a, a successful a success, uh, assassination attempt on one of the sitting justices of the Supreme Court. I don't, as far as I know, that's never happened. There's never been a successful assassination attempt of a of a Supreme Court justice. And as if you, if we think that the country is in is tearing itself apart now, if if that ever happened, particularly on a justice as controversial as as Kavanaugh has been, it would it would have been just a, a total disaster um, for for a number of reasons. But again, thank goodness this didn't happen. But the reason I want to bring this up is because I think this is, again, another like instance. This should be one, like, one of those canary in the coal mine situations of just of the the. The degradation of our political discourse and how when people talk about violence and use tones and words that are angry and, and fighting and upset, whether it's on either side, this is the inevitable of what happens. There are crazy people on both sides of the spectrum. And we saw some of those crazy people on January 6th that were incited by violent words. And we see people now on on, on a, attempting assassinations of quote-unquote conservative Supreme Court justice that are also being incited by words. And so um, this is, people also maybe have heard of this, and Ricky, you might have with your Wisconsin ties, but um a retired judge was killed in uh, Wisconsin just, I think, two Fridays ago. Uh, a 56-year-old man had been like zip-tied to his chair and shot, and the, the killer went in specifically because, like, because of his like judicial decisions. He had a list of other people he wanted to kill, including um, Michigan Governor Whitmer and uh, Senate Minority Leader McConnell and. So this is something. And again, there was also uh, a man I believe that was arrested outside the U.S. Capitol again last week from Michigan from Michigan um with he had a BB gun ballistic vest high capacity magazines and so this is where it's it's becoming like more and more dangerous out there and it's scary to think like you know luckily the judiciary has largely been exempt from political violence in this country and the the most we've probably seen of it is like during the civil rights era when Southern judges were trying to enforce civil rights laws, like you would often have crosses being burned on their lawns and um, firebombing of their houses or families' houses, and they had to get security. And uh, while judges often have difficult and potentially like 
dangerous job. It's actually to tie it back to our gun conversation. Lawyers and judges are one of the almost um, like accepted classes in Massachusetts that is that are allowed to to carry guns because of like their nature of their jobs. Uh, but it's 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 scary, and I think a lot of people have pointed to Majority Leader Schumer's like incendiary remarks from a couple of years ago in terms of firing people up. And I, I don't know. It's just not that not that Schumer or Trump or anybody are like really listening to this or listening to anybody who are saying stuff like this. But it's like you've said repeatedly, like the the words really do matter. And when when people say these type of things that are setting up like an us versus them mentality and like these apocalyptic type statements, you're going to have people that take it that way and try to take things into their own hands. And again, thank goodness nothing worse happened, but it's again, should be a wake up call to everybody that are in positions of power to like tone things down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's, that's definitely right. I think also in, in, maybe this is just like the perception that I had growing up that like a lot of these places or these people were kind of like untouchable just from a, like, no matter what you want to do, like you can't storm the Capitol. That's like a shoot on site place, or you can't like, you know, just, you know, mosey down the street of a Supreme court justice and break into his house. That's like a shoot on site offense. Like these are things that I thought it was just kind of like, you know, accepted or, or understood that after, like you said, the JFK or even the, the RFK assassination, that like the security was such that it was basically impossible. And once you got into these areas, there were people watching your every move. And in some ways, like January 6th, like shattered that a little bit, sort of the impregnability of um, kind of the capital and the surrounding and like those people that I like, I mean, obviously not that I've ever like had any of those types of thoughts, but like, it, it just seemed like, even if you did, the whole thing was just impossible because of like the security that we have for, for those types of individuals. And I think it's been a little bit eye opening that this guy could kind of just Google Justice Kavanaugh, find his address and then like show up on his street with all this, like, yeah, he got from California to Maryland and I don't know if he flew with the gun or all this other stuff that he brought over. Um, it, it just seems like, yeah, that like somebody would have been onto him earlier and, and caught him in the movies. And so the fact that like he had, he was sitting in his car and ended up like calling the 911 operator who, I don't know if you've heard this tape, is like very wild the 911 operator is like so your plan was you're just going to go in there and like kill justice like kill the justice and like hurt yourself or something and the guy goes correct it's like what what, what is going on <laughs> like the whole conversation was very matter of fact i mean i'm yeah. sure the operator was like what do you mean you're turning yourself in for yeah I, I don't know the whole thing is is wild that definitely serious i think one thing that like I that it hadn't really I mean it was kind of buried a little bit in the New York Times um and and certainly there's been like some accusations of of like bias in media that like you know this kind of news is getting traction on the right because it's uh someone on the left trying to do something like this to someone on the right but it's not getting as much traction in progressive news or whatever not progressive like more left news outlets like the New York Times 
where it was, I don't know, second or third page news on the day that it happened. I mean, I guess, I guess there is something to say about like the seriousness of the plot. Like clearly he came very prepared to do the things that he subsequently like confessed to doing, but it was also like he was deterred immediately at the sight of like two U.S. Marshals, which like you said, thank God that they were there, but, but also, I don't know, in comparison to something like the January 6th plot where it was, you know, there was kind of a leader of a movement. There was multiple groups of like organization. Um, this to me, interestingly enough, for people on the right almost feels like something that you would say, well, there's, you know, there's nothing you can do about this because it's one guy, he has a right to have a gun and he has probably a right to be on that street. And I like, I don't know if his confessions are going to be admissible in court, but like, I don't actually know if he broke any laws besides telling somebody that he was intending to do this thing. Right. So, which is also kind of like an interesting thing. I don't know. To tell you, like, kind of add all back. Yeah. I, I guess one kind of further note that I wanted to make on this is that last Tuesday, the department of Homeland security released a statement and most people probably know the Department of Homeland Security was formed in response to foreign terrorism after 9-11. That's, that's why this organization was formed. But increasingly, they have turned their attention, deservedly so, to domestic terrorism. And they released a statement saying that they expect the next few months the, the threat uh, to become, the, the threats in, inside our country to become higher. And they pointed to several things specifically. One, the potential of a of Roe being overturned, that decision actually coming out to the increase, the surge of migrants at the southern border, and three, the midterm elections. And they said those three events, there could be violence around those events. And I remember reading after January 6th, like this poll, that the percentage of Americans that felt like violence against the government was sometimes justified had like skyrocketed in recent years. Like for for the 20th century, most people said no. And all of a sudden, in recent years on both sides, people say, well, sometimes violence is necessary. And you can see, again, where people that are so dug in and again, look at these things like framing them in apocalyptic views of like, if Roe is overturned, if these migrants get into our country, if this person is elected, it's like the end of the United States as we know it. Then you, it's not a big step for people that are already like teetering on the edge, mental health wise, to, to to try like take things into their own hands, and that's that's again why I, I come back to like the rhetoric and that the words matter, and that people in positions of power matter. And so I'm not sure that January 6th is going to do it to people. I'm not sure if an assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice is going to do it to people. But you hope some people are out there listening and, and trying to tone it down a little bit. Yeah, you you definitely hope. Uh, I mean, it it feels like the situation w- with guns in our country is exacerbated, or not exacerbated, but elevated the threat level of like when we talk about like serious violence. And I, I I'm not saying that ordinary people or ordinary gun owners are really you know, in that, in that kind of vein. And, um, but it is like, I don't know that other countries necessarily 
that that probably do have similar like you know france for instance they have demonstrations that get violent on a you know non-irregular basis regularly against the government but i don't know that they they kind of maybe worry about that level of escalation as much because the rate of gun ownership is a lot lower and i'm and i'm not trying to pin our current situation on gun ownership but i think it's it it would be naive not to acknowledge that we're sitting on maybe a little bit more of a tinderbox than some other places with similar kinds of yeah feelings in the air just because of you know what we have at our disposal and and unfortunately it feels like in some ways this is like the cycle of the world like the world in that these things like will build and people forget like historically how hard it has been for us to get to a place where we can have the peaceful transfer of power and we can have very hotly contested elections and then people can just go back to living their lives after the fact and you know some laws get made that you like some get made that you don't like and you sort of live with that as a as a result of the democracy but now people are starting and and you know in his historically people have remembered what happened domestically during Vietnam or domestically or internationally in World War II and are and we're very leery of like letting things get that far but now we're like 40 50 years from something like that are we in store for something like that again you hope not but memories are short as we know that was really well said I'm I'm, I'm gonna clip that one yeah just depressing Ricky here for you on a Tuesday. <laughs> Typical Tuesday night, Ricky. Yeah. I get I get better by Thursday sometimes. I think. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes. All right. Yeah, that's all I got for you. All right, man. Always a pleasure. Never a chore. I'll see you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's hands and folks of different minds because even though it did not share opinions we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value of sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the 
things to find in a occasional lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell. Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share On that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share On that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus.